thank you for standing by. Today's call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. I would like to inform all participants that you will be in a listen-only mode until the question and answer session, at which time you may press star 1 to ask a question. I would now like to turn the call over to the Honorable Jane Harmon, Director, President, and CEO of the Wilson Center. Thank you, ma'am. You may begin. Thank you, Operator. Uh, and uh, good morning to those on the East Coast of the United States. Good afternoon to some in Europe. Good late afternoon to uh, many listening in from the Middle East and around the world. Uh, thanks for tuning in to the Wilson Center's 155th, I am not making this up, 155th Ground Truth Briefing, which is a teleconference uh, that includes our, our best scholars and experts from around the world. Uh, and in uh, in what and outside the Reagan Building in Washington D.C. Since we are all on enhanced teleleave telework, um, as the number one think tank in the world for regional studies three years in a row, it's the Wilson Center's job to put the COVID-19 crisis in context and to fill you in on how different regions are responding. So today. We're delving into the Middle East and North Africa. This follows, I should say, uh, conferences uh, about most other regions of the world, including one with five countries, uh, health experts from five countries in Africa. But I'm very much lo uh, looking forward to hearing about uh, uh, this area. The pandemic has not been good for anyone, but it hit the MENA region at a particularly challenging time. Lebanon and Iraq are still recovering from massive protests brought on by economic crises. High youth unemployment has also taken a toll on Egypt and Jordan, which has the added challenge of hosting more than 2.5 million Syrian, Iraqi, Yemeni, and Palestinian refugees. I've been there recently. I saw the Syrian refugee camp. That's the bulk of the refugees in Jordan, and Jordan punches above its weight. Uh, to reach out for these refugees and assimilate most of them into Jordanian society. Saudi Arabia and the other GCC countries have pushed to reduce their oil dependence and diversify markets, but haven't gotten there yet. And meanwhile, civil wars continue in Libya, Syria, Yemen. And, oh, by the way, no one is missing this, that the fact that there is no uh, clear government in Afghanistan uh, could lead uh, to... Uh, not only the inability of that government to pursue the peace, the so-called peace deal, but also could lead to uh, uh, more Taliban attacks in the country and possibly the fall of that government. So it needs to be put on the uh, failing government list as well. So it's plain to see how a pandemic crossed with an oil price war is putting a tremendous strain on regional governments to deliver basic government services and economic opportunities not to mention an effective medical response to the virus. This could, in turn, breed even more political instability in a post-COVID Middle East. Perhaps the threat of an unmitigated disaster is the reason why several regional governments took strict, proactive measures to combat the spread of the virus. Jordan went into total lockdown in mid-March. The UAE ranks third in the world for coronavirus testing per capita. Good for them. In Saudi Arabia, Mecca remains closed even as Ramadan begins today. There's a lot to dig into and a lot that's still unknown about the economic pain that these necessary health precautions will cause. 
For today, we're focusing our discussions on Egypt, Jordan, and the GCC countries, including Saudi Arabia. We're joined by a a group of real experts in this material. Uh, Besma Momani of the University of Waterloo, Ibrahim Saeed of the Jordan Strategy Forum, uh, one of my all-time favorites, Wilson Fellow and former journalist uh, David Ottaway, who with his wife Marina brings so much talent to the Wilson Center, and Timothy Kildas of the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. Introducing our speakers and moderating the discussion is our very own Marissa Hurma, the exceptional project manager uh, of our Middle East Special Initiative. Many thanks to her and her team and the, the rest of the Wilson Center team for your work on this extraordinary programming. And let me just close by saying that uh, we did a program yesterday afternoon on the Mexican border and the new refugee and immigration crisis, uh, and almost 1,200 people listened in. Uh, it's extraordinary what the demand is for our program, and I didn't check on the demand for this program, but I know it's high, and I look forward with all the rest of you to learning a great deal. Please join it, join me in welcoming Marissa Horma. Thank you so much, uh, Congressman Harmon, for your introduction. I'm delighted to be moderating today's very important discussion on the impact of COVID-19 on economy. Marissa, I, um, I think I've lost. I cannot hear you anymore. Ibrahim said. As, as Congresswoman Harmon noted earlier. Uh, Many countries in the region have enforced very strict lockdowns early on, shuttering businesses and closing borders. But beyond all of this, we've also witnessed the oil market almost under siege with uh, supplies ballooning and with government uh, responses to COVID-19 pretty much destroying demand, only to be made worse by the price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia. That all hit the market at the same time. Needless to say, there's a lot to unwrap on how the economies have been affected, particularly in the Arab Gulf um, and um, oil exporters. So here to help us understand um, these implications, particularly in the short to medium term, a very distinguished expert that uh, Congresswoman Harman already briefly introduced. Um, I'd like to welcome Vesma Momani, who, uh, in addition to being a professor at the University of Waterloo up north, uh, She's a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance and uh, Innovation and a non-resident fellow at the Arab Gulf Institute um, in Washington, D.C. Basma will give us an overview on the impact, um, uh, of the impact on the GCC. Um, David Ottaway will follow then uh, with David, um, dear colleague here at the Wilson Center, um, is known for his um, extraordinary reporting on the Middle East. Um, and uh, is co-author um, of uh, a book with Marina Ottaway on, uh, called A Tale of Four Worlds, the Arab region after the uprising. Um, and he will be uh, talking about Saudi Arabia. Dr. Ibrahim Saif is the CEO of the Jordan Strategy Forum, which is uh, a very distinguished think tank focused on economic policy. He also served as Jordan's Minister of Energy Um, as well as Minister of Planning and International Cooperation of Jordan. And um, then we will hear from Timothy Kaldas, who is a non-resident fellow at the Sahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. Um, 
he will um, focus on Egypt, given his research interest in, um, on um, uh, politics in Egypt as well as U.S.-Egyptian uh, relations. Um, Timothy is also a very regular contributor to Bloomberg News as well as other media platforms. Um, so I will give each one of you um, five minutes, and then we will take questions from our participants, and I'd like to welcome all our participants this morning. Um, and a quick note to our participants, um, for um, questions, please press star one, and then you will be basically placed on the queue for questions. And I would like to remind everybody to kindly mute yourself when participants are speaking in order to avoid um, background noise. So Basma, um, I'm going to start with you. Um, given your expertise um, on the political economy of the region, but also the work that you've done with the IMF, which has already warned that this, uh, the, the economic fallout is going to be far worse than what we've seen um, for the, with the global financial crisis of 2009. So how is the COVID-19 pandemic affecting the oil exporters of the Middle East, particularly the GCC, um, with nearly all of these countries affected by the spread of the virus? Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate this uh, opportunity, and I'm enjoying this, uh, what's going to be a great conversation, I'm sure. So let me just start off by saying that, uh, look, I think we're all uh, affected by this. Clearly, it is a global crisis. And so some of what I'm going to mention may not be particular to the Gulf, but I think uh, one of the challenges that we need to consider is how interrelated the Gulf is to not just, uh, obviously, the regional economies, but the global economy. And you can't really talk about the Gulf economies without mentioning oil. And I think we all saw the stunning and I say that because in my, you know, 20 academic years, I've never seen anything like negative price selling. Um, now, of course, that is a very particular, let's say, shipment of oil that was, uh, you know, basically stuck off the coast of Oklahoma that um, the shippers wanted to get off their hands and quite literally were willing to pay people to take it. Uh, but this is a, a challenge that after a month of uh, I think a disastrous a price war between the Russians and the Saudis. We're now dealing with uh, what is, uh, for lack of a better term, I think a collapse of the oil markets. Some in the industry are hopeful that things will resume, um, that we'll look at the June future pricing and maybe things will pick up again. I'm not optimistic at all. I think that uh, we're going to see, as we get closer to June, the same thing happening yet again. So this is a real, real challenge, and the global economy impact of that uh, which, you know, obviously is a bit beyond the scope of this call, is the fact that this will also likely lead to the collapse of, um, uh, you know, non-conventional types of drilling that we're seeing in the cases of Canada, the United States, all shale producers, everyone's going to be affected, uh, particularly outside the Gulf. But on the issue of what does it mean for the Gulf? Well, obviously, as I pointed out, the economy there is going to struggle with the fact that really oil is the backbone of all of the economies throughout the Gulf. Um, if you think about uh, how many Gulf countries have budgeted um, their, their uh, expenditures, they, they work on the assumption of $65 a barrel. Um, today, it's officially between 10 and 20, depending on whether you're looking at international markets and so forth. But I think that's just a number that's going to continue to go down, in my humble opinion. So this is really about a, a deficit that the Gulf countries are going to have to pick up. But obviously, uh, there is more than just oil. It, it is, of course, the, the main and uh, key source of revenue. But 
also travel and tourism. Uh, I think many people who have visited the Gulf countries know that they have spent a very long time investing and trying to be a key destination, uh, not only for uh, you know those who are transiting to Asia. Uh, obviously, a lot of money put into being airline hubs. Uh, if you think about Dubai, even Qatar recently getting into the game, this is really disastrous for that industry as well, as many of us are, are no longer traveling, don't feel safe, there's travel restrictions. And again, without a vaccine, and, and to put this out in terms of how I think this is going to unravel, we're not going to get a business back to normal, even if our lockdowns uh, presumably you know, are lifted in the next couple of months. The, the travel industry is based on a usually non-necessity travel, and most of us are not going to get on a comfort, feel comfortable going on a plane, particularly the long-haul types that take you to the Gulf uh, and transit you through. So it is really, I think, disastrous for the industry. It is not going to resume anytime soon. It is a one- to two-year, I think, um, a problem, particularly because that's what most good estimates are in terms of a vaccine. Um, so that's disastrous. And just to give you an idea of what I mean by that, um, in the case of the Gulf, um, the case of, for example, a country like um, Saudi Arabia, you know, it depends on $75 billion uh, a year in tourism income. Uh, Qatar, $30 billion, Kuwait, $10 billion. Uh, we look at some of the big events, signature events that some of these countries have been planning. Uh, Dubai is planning its Expo 2020. It's delayed at the moment, I believe, um, first to October, uh, but I think that's probably not going to be canceled. They've already put in $40 billion. And I have seen many presentations, um, many of you probably have as well, of you know, very proud officials of Dubai talking about this Expo 2020. Many of us have been watching Qatar build an enormous city uh, on the, the premise that everybody's going to come to watch um, the FIFA World Cup in 2022. Uh, is that going to be back to normal? I don't think we can really safely assume that these things are going to pick up again. So that's the kind of deep scarring, and I use that word very specifically because this is what many political economists would call economic scars. These are permanent features that are not going to go away anytime soon. So that is a real issue. Now, of course, uh, I think there's also going to be uh, enormous concern about what this means for the, the side of, of consumption. You know, the, the Gulf is very dependent on consumer spending. It is uh, often uh, seen as a, a sort of a hub for consumption. It is very much, I think, uh, going to lose that as most retail um, sectors have, have experienced throughout the world. Um, certainly, I think it also plays a very important role as a hub, a logistical hub, uh, if you think about the UAE ports, uh, you know, entire global trade and supply chains have come to a standstill. I think that's going to continue for a long time, particularly because the Gulf uh, and Dubai in particular really mark itself, or the UAE marks itself as a kind of a, a hub between uh, Asia and Europe and the rest of the world. Well, trade is not going to resume. Uh, we have seen an entire collapse of the retail sector and the wholesale sector, and that is all going to be, I think, continue to be negatively affected as time goes on. Um, I do want to point out that there are uh, other um, sort of maybe not uh, high-priority sectors, but, you know, something I'm concerned about, universities. Um, as a senior administrator in university, I've seen how this is going to affect us negatively. Uh, universities in the Gulf is also a big source of pride. Now, that's something that the government funds. You know, many campuses from, you know, prestigious American universities are there, but it's about 75% paid for by the Gulf government, and they are going to be, I think, without students for 
some time. Uh, that is a big, big challenge. Um, so that's another sort of fiscal outlay that is going to be, uh, I think, on the minds of many people. Now, I'm going to give you some good news just to kind of, and then I'll go back to some of the part that really makes me scared. So we're going to go up and down here. But in terms of some of the good news, look, uh, a lot of banks in the region are strong. Um, you know, I think there is some uh, strong reserves in some countries that will weather the storm. Certainly, you know, Kuwaiti banks are very strong, well-known historically, but there are some uh, commercial banks that we need to be worried about. Uh, Bahrain, Oman, uh, they're going to be, I think, in a very precarious situation as time moves on. Um, certainly, um, you know, Saudi Arabia, although it has very, very strong reserves, it has a big population. I'll leave that to my colleague David to talk more about. And then the other thing I wanted to, to mention that is, you know, somewhat of good news is that you know, there's good, strong public health care uh, in the Gulf, uh, you know, from especially what we've learned about this virus, um, you know, ICUs, beds, ventilators, um, testing, contact tracing, all the surveillance. We know there's been a lot of money put into surveillance, some of which is uh, technology-imposed uh, surveillance that I think is going to be amped up. Um, I think for those of us who are interested in uh, privacy and our data, that is not a good thing. Uh, but certainly I think in terms of containing the virus, and being able to manage those who come to ventilators and use the ICUs and beds, uh, the Gulf is in a pretty good situation, particularly compared to the rest of the Middle East. They have the capacity, they have the, the technology, the health technology uh, needed to, to weather this. But there is a really ugly underside of all of this that I think really deserves attention, which is the guest workers. And that is something that I think should keep us all awake at night. We don't talk about it very often, but it's a sector of society that needs to be considered. Uh, this, of course, is the reality that there are millions and millions, the majority of the population in uh, much of these Gulf countries are not nationals. Some are expats uh, who are relatively uh, well-to-do and won't be necessarily affected by this, but there's the underbelly of the Gulf economies, which is poor, underpaid, uh, guest workers, and we've already seen uh, reports um, in Qatar, for example, in um, on the outskirts of Doha, there is uh, thousands of migrant workers where there is a COVID-19 outbreak um, inside these very crowded camps. Uh, this is going to be, I think, very problematic. And even though sometimes the government has come up with efforts to put forward sort of unpaid, or sorry, paid leaves and giving money to okay, companies, the challenge... Yep. Oh, I'm sorry. The quick yeah. challenge is, yeah. yep, the challenge is the money may not come to the workers themselves. And so that is something that I think we should be talking about as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm happy that you had some good news in there because we're all banking on any positive news at this point. Um, so um, on to David to give us a more in-depth look um, on what's going on in Saudi Arabia, um, given his expertise um, uh, in, in, in the country. David, on to you. Okay, thank you. Um, I was going to divide my comments between the domestic fallout and the international fallout <clears throat> for Saudi Arabia. Domestically, uh, as Bethlehem was saying, financially, Saudi Arabia is in a very good position to deal with a crisis like this. <laughs> it's got $500 billion in reserves. It's got a very strong international rating and I was amazed to see they just um, put out $7 billion in bonds. And that was over, way oversubscribed to the, to the amount of $54 billion willing, <laughs> willing to uh, invest in Saudi bombs uh, by international investors. 
So financially, they're, they're in very good shape. Now, um, that's, that's the, I guess, the relatively good news. The bad news is that um, their whole strategy for getting off dependence on, on oil has really been shattered by this. They are in the process of trying to launch belatedly projects to encourage tourism. Uh, tourism. I say belatedly, belatedly compared to the rest of the Gulf countries. And they are trying to build these huge resorts on the Red Sea. They call them giga projects. They have four giga projects. One is an entertainment city just out of uh, outside of Riyadh, um, where Six Flags is involved as the one of the anchor companies coming in. This huge, two and a half times the size of the Disney World in Orlando. It's a huge project. Then two resort areas in on the Red Sea, and then finally, uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's uh, cherished. Naom city that he wanted to build a kind of a incubator for high technology companies also on the Red Sea and which they were going to pour half uh, 500 billion dollars into building from the ground up now this whole strategy is really threatened by what's happened because as Besma points out and I don't think the Saudis yet fully appreciate this is not a six-month crisis. This is this is a crisis that was going to last until there is a vaccine, and the and the vaccine can be sold internationally. And we're, so we're probably talking two years, year and a half to two years. So the impact domestically is that these projects are going to be put on hold. The Saudis can they have already agreed to provide salaries, 60% of the salaries for their own nationals working in private companies that are shut down. But that's only for two two months. And I think they're going to have to renew this. So far, they've set aside $32 billion as a stimulus and also to pay their own nationals which leaves totally unresolved of what you do with the 8 to 10 million foreign workers that are in the country and about which they are, they're not saying a word. Um, so, so the Saudis, I think, haven't yet come to terms with what this really means. Or let's, let's put it this way. They haven't indicated by what they're saying that they are really um, – come to terms with the implications for for their whole uh, strategy of developing particularly tourism to provide jobs and to get off dependency on oil. The other one is their sovereign wealth fund which they've they've taken seriously finally and they're up to about 320 billion dollars. Um, but all their foreign investments are in trouble because of the, what's happened in the international economy. Um, and they've, the Sovereign Wealth Fund is now the owner of these four huge projects that they have to finance. So I think they're in real trouble going forward financially, uh, not financially, um, on, on their strategy of getting off oil. Now, 
internationally, what's really struck me in the last two, three weeks is how the how stark the conflict between the United States and Saudi Arabia has become over oil. We didn't used to be a player in the international oil um, world until about two years ago, and now we're We've been exporting 2 million barrels or 3 million barrels. We're not self-sufficient, but we have enough to be an exporter. And the Saudi, because of the shale oil uh, uh, explosion, and the Saudis and, and the United States are now in conflict with each other over oil. And what really brought this home is that in the last few weeks, the the, the financial media like the Wall Street Journal and uh, Oil Price uh, have been pointing out that there are somewhere between 9 and 20 super tankers, Saudi super tankers, on their way to the United States, each one carrying 20, 2 million barrels of oil. And this, they're, they're, they've been selling it at a discount. So this is in... This is really going to be a problem for our domestic uh, oil industry, particularly the whole new generation of uh, fracking um, and shale oil. And 13 Republican senators have called upon Trump to take action to stop this oil from coming into the United States, either by putting a tariff on it or just not allowing it to come into the United States. And I have never seen this kind of conflict between the United States and Saudi Arabia over oil before in my, in my half a decade of following events, half a century of following events in uh, Saudi Arabia. And I don't know where it's going to lead, but it looks to me like the erosion of support for Saudi Arabia inside the United States um, is going to go down for far, further. And, and it raises questions about whether we're going to be willing to, you know, to provide any kind of defense for them if the Iranians decide to trigger a war or carry out another attack on Saudi oil facilities the way they did last September. Um, so I think it's having uh, quite an impact on U.S.-Saudi relations. Now, it's also having a big impact on Saudi-Russian Stop you here uh, so that we, we we can come back okay. to uh, a bit later. All right. Okay. Thank Stop you so there. much. Um, I'm Abraham. Um, you're calling in from Amman. Uh, Jordan has a small uh, economy and has been in distress for years, pretty much since the last global financial crisis. So tell us um, what your think tank has been doing to sort of um, uh, assess the impact on Jordan's economy. Abraham, are you there? Okay. Uh, for the interest of time, let's move to uh, Timothy, and then we'll we'll try you again uh, later. Um, Tim, you've been um, doing a lot of research and work on Egypt, and have uh, recently published a few pieces on the impact um, of COVID-19 on the Egyptian economy. Um, what are what are the main concerns for you? Um, moving forward, particularly in the short to medium term. Thanks, Marissa. Um, 
I think that, I mean, like most countries, Egypt is dealing with a lot of internal, external shocks to its economy um, that it's struggling to manage and mitigate. Um, it's harmed things that were going well for Egypt in the past few years, and it's exacerbated some of the problems that were already uh, in place. Uh, externally, more or less all of its primary sources of hard currency have taken a hit. So international trade being down means Suez Canal revenue is down. Tourism has obviously collapsed globally, and so that's going to affect Egypt. In Egypt, tourism accounts for about 5% of GDP. Um, natural gas prices are down as demand for energy is down, and I suspect that the, uh, the oil crisis means that FDI, which has largely been in the oil and gas sector for exploration, um, is going to come down as well. Uh, remittances, which account for about 9% of GDP, come primarily from uh, countries in the Gulf, which are dependent on oil. And so that's also likely to take a hit. Um, the Minister of Finance said that about $14 billion in foreign treasury holdings exited um, in the past month or so. That's about half of the uh, total. So it's a substantial hit. And reserves are already down at least 10% uh, so far. They had a substantial amount of reserves, so they have some room to maneuver on that. But it just depends on how long this lasts. Um, the central bank has also been trying to fight dollarization in the domestic market, as Egyptians appear to have been trying to sell pounds and buy dollars in anticipation of a possible drop in the value of the currency. And given the oddly stable uh, FX value of the Egyptian pound at the moment, it seems that it's possible the central bank has reverted to its past strategy of surreptitiously protecting the pound. But I think in the, in the medium term, it's hard to imagine that the Egyptian pound doesn't come down with potential uh, to exacerbate inflation, which is something they just finally started to get a hold on. Um, internally, Egypt uh, is dealing, like most countries, with dramatically reduced domestic economic activity. Um, this has affected cash flow for businesses, liquidity issues. Central bank has been trying to bail them out, uh, provide low-interest loans. They've reduced the overnight lending rate by 300 basis points so far. Um, while simultaneously to keep people's currency in Egyptian pounds, they've, uh, they've dramatically, they've offered uh, certificates of deposit at 15%, which is about, which is 475 basis points over the lending rate, uh, just to keep people's money in banks, in pounds, as opposed to turning them into dollars. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, in general, the private sector has been contracting for years. So this is just exacerbating that problem. Um, roughly half of the workers in Egypt are informal workers, um, and so it's difficult. The government doesn't have great data on these individuals, and so their ability to provide them with direct relief is limited due to the lack of infrastructure for cash-based uh, means-tested cash transfers. Um, they've set up a program to get informal workers uh, 500 Egyptian pounds a month for the next few months, uh, it's about $30, but that's only reaching a, a small percentage of the, uh, of the informal workforce. Many people don't know how to register. Uh, <clears throat> don't even, some of them don't even know about the program. Um, there's a lot of uh, challenges in terms of accessing those funds. Um, and the other, the other challenge for telling a population to shelter in place is that a third of Egyptians live below the poverty line. Uh, and the World Bank estimates that as many as 60% of Egyptians live near or below the poverty line. So these are people who 
live day to day, don't really have a savings. And so the government's ability to keep these people home or even to help them survive because economic activity is so depressed is, is, a, is a major challenge. Um, the government's been trying. Uh, I think they've actually made a lot of sincere efforts to try to control both the spread of the virus and the economic fallout. They suspended international travel, which obviously is something, the last thing in the world they want to do. Uh, they've, um, they've also uh, they shuttered schools and universities very early into this uh, to try to, to, to lessen the spread. But, um, but they're also just dealing with a lot of, you know, real challenges in terms of uh, the issues that I've, I've already addressed in terms of poverty, in terms of uh, the lack of infrastructure for supporting the population. And frankly, just they, there's only so much money that they can spend. They've committed $100 billion, which is a little over $6 billion, which for them is a substantial sum. Um, but uh, it's not clear how, much, how long this is going to last. And so as a result, it's not clear how sustainable these measures can be. Um, part of what's exacerbated the problem for Egypt is that it had a lot of structural fragility to begin with. Um, as I mentioned, the private sector has been doing poorly for years. As the government emphasized debt-driven stimulus, that it really was channeled through a lot of enterprises that were owned by the security sector, be it the interior ministry, intelligence, or military. Um, and they haven't been able to undertake all the reforms that they had promised to reduce red tape, uh, improve the efficiency of customs, et cetera. Um, and so while we've seen some substantial uh, growth in terms of GDP, we've also at the same time witnessed an expansion of poverty and a contraction of that private sector. Um, so there's a lot of... Yeah, Tim, I'm, I'm going to just uh, stop you here so that we move on to Ibrahim. Uh, but, you know, when you talk about the third of the addition population, um, you know, they've hit the 100 million uh, population mark earlier this year. So uh, we're, we're, we're talking about really big numbers. And so quite, quite words in there. Um, thank you, Tim. Yeah, absolutely. Ibrahim, um, you're back with us on the line. Um, so I'm going to um, ask you to just give us a very quick um, overview of how this is affecting, how this crisis is affecting um, Jordan's already um, um, suffering economy. Thank you, Mary. Uh, yes, too. I, uh, you know, it cost me sometimes to have everything. Uh, what I want to say is, uh, is that uh, Jordan, Jordanian economy has been suffering and struggling uh, before the pandemic, before the coronavirus. And uh, 2020, uh, our estimate of GDP growth was 2% uh, in terms of year growth, but it's more dominant Unemployment uh, before Corona was going around 20 percent, back in 19.7, and it is well over 23 uh, percent in some cities. Amongst the unemployment amongst our youth, and what did BTP was struggling to generate revenue in the macro expand deficit, which translate into a higher debt, uh, which is also hovering around to you know, 95, 96% uh, of GDP, so it was already high, and the burden of that debt was high. So this is how we got into that um, this last two months, and the economics indicators were not really shining away, although the economy started to show 
project audit actually, I would say, in a way that um, the, the investors were really looking into the market and um, starting to change their attitudes towards uh, the, the market in terms of their willingness to allocate resources and invest more. Um, so I would say that the element of predictability and certainty was much higher today. One of the things that really stuck in the economy is, is, is the high degree of uncertainty and unpredictability. Uh, plus what would happen to our deficit, what would happen to the stability of uh, our currency, and what happened to overall what would happen to um, the market framework. However, uh, Jordan was quick to act to uh, deal with the pandemic, uh, and they, we were successful in mitigating and uh, the, the uh, the, the outbreak of, of, of the virus, uh, and so health-wise, and the coordination that took place between various government institutions, uh, the government, the army, the oil courts, and all the private sector stakeholders, they put their efforts together, and so far I think that they have been successful in, in, in dealing with that. And indeed that got translated into um, a high rating for the government in Jordan. Um, all of a sudden, confidence in, in the state institutions um, have sort of skyrocketed, and um, many people during the first two, three, or four weeks of the, the crisis um, were showing some solidarity with the government, and they were very supportive. And um, again, the trust institutions somehow have been regained. Now, uh, another five. Uh, the month after that, what happened is that started, uh, the, the, the people started to feel the heat economically because a complete lockdown during some of the weekends, a shutdown of so many activities. Um, and as mentioned earlier, uh, even in the Egyptian case, almost 40% of our labor was informal. Uh, and informality means that people are making their beds day by day, so uh, they were not able to, they wouldn't be able to survive. Yeah, and that's started to bite even now. So the headline today in Jordan is that how to uh, relax the control and how to regain some uh, of the activities and how to reopen. This took the government into a micromanagement now of the economy. It's a very detailed, very microscopic, I would say, management of, of, of the situation. And um, because of the uh, limited resources, limited fiscal space, uh, that is available uh, for the government. Uh, the um, increasing in terms of increasing liquidity or having uh, 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 an expansion fiscal policy or throwing money and trying to uh, uh, rescue some of the economic activities. Uh, indeed, it was tough. So we adopt few measures to ease the economic situation uh, in terms of. Uh, the central bank took a lead in this event of calling from uh, trying to issue and adopt some initiatives and to explore uh, some of the companies, especially the SMEs. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a very tough time. We haven't seen the, word, the, the, the bottom of, uh, uh, we haven't hit the bottom uh, of, of this crisis yet in Jordan because still uh, people uh, are hoping that things will open uh, up soon. And we can just resume business. So, sectorally, Jordan uh, is heavily right in tourism last year. It generates about 
15% of GDP, and you can imagine what happens, and recovery path for that is, is going to be long. And even in analyzing pictures in Jordan, we can look at the, the, the strength and the recovery path at a sectoral level and even at a subsectoral level. Jordan um, workers' remittances are threatened by decline as a result of also what's happening in the Gulf, and uh, I think uh, David and others, and, and that may lead to how about the situation in the Gulf, and what would uh, uh, that have an impact on uh, sites that are getting and working there. Foreign um, assistance, we don't know how, how uh, attractive Jordan now would be for, uh, to attract some, some donation or concessionary funding. Uh, and generally, some of our exports actually have declined uh, as a result of, of, of the lockdown and, and the number of that report. While, on, on a positive note, now many of our policymakers looking at the domestic industry, at agricultural, agri, agri industry, um, uh, pharmaceutical, education, and that could be um, uh, a resilient system. In, in, in facing this pandemic, and it could be uh, a sector that might uh, achieve some growth in the future. But all in all now, uh, and I will end with this, is that um, the authorities are really uh, trying to balance uh, between um, um, continue, continuing the lockdown and, and, and giving the currency to the health sector and uh, uh, um, sort of uh, Delaying uh, issues related to fiscal consolidation and um, reactivating the economy in a way. And this is the way now the debate is taking place in Jordan uh, uh, during this uh, time, uh, with many people that really supporting uh, the idea that we should uh, take this uh, uh, gradual uh, recovery path and starting to open up the economy, which is happening at a limited scale. And in the midst of all of this, the government has uh, pioneered some programs to support the vulnerable groups, the informal, etc., which also created a kind of place because they have never been part of the formal economy. So it was uh, logistically uh, and from a data and perspective, it was very cumbersome and very difficult process to undertake. Yeah. So this is where we are today looking uh, to open up the economy again. Thank you, Marissa. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Ibrahim. And of course, um, as economies in the suffer, uh, given Jordan's uh, dependence on support and investment from the Gulf States, also will definitely affect the flow of um, FDI from, from the Gulf countries. Um, thank you all. Um, this was very insightful. Uh, we're going to start um, our Q&A session, and I'd like to invite Congresswoman Harmon to ask the first question. Um, let me just remind everybody uh, to ask a question just by star one. Thank you, Marissa. Thank you to the panelists. I thought this was exceptionally interesting. I had a little bit of trouble hearing Ibrahim. I hope others didn't, uh, but the presentations could not have been clearer uh, and, or, more, or the views more challenging. So I, I'm taking the liberty, uh, Marissa, please forgive me. You're a, good, you're a tough taskmaster of asking two questions, but very quickly. Number one, um, my field is security and intelligence, and one of the things we always talk about is ticking time bombs. And it sure sounds like uh, this problem with guest and informal workers plus refugees 
is a ticking time bomb in the region, leading to regime collapse and or uh, the recruitment of lots of young folks who have nothing to lose uh, into the ranks of uh, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, pick a terror group. And this is very dangerous for the region, but also for us. So that's one question. Um, do we have any tools against this that weren't discussed, such as the World Bank or the IMF or other international lending organizations? Um, that's one. Uh, question two. Yesterday was um, the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. Uh, does this oil uh, crisis offer the opportunity for the Gulf as a region uh, just let's imagine to use technology to transition uh, out of dependence on dirty fossil fuels to uh, cleaner fossil fuels and or something they're very good at producing, which is solar energy since they have so much sand and sunshine. Thank you, Congresswoman. Um, well, uh, David, I'm you want to take the first one and then maybe... Um, uh, I'll take the second. Okay. Yeah, David, go ahead on the first question. Well, actually, I was going to reply to Jane's second question about Saudi Arabia has a pretty keen awareness that the oil they have has got a life term of 20 years or something like that. And they've been going into solar energy. Uh, big time in the last few years, uh, really just getting it going. But the, they're definitely aware of um, uh, that they've got to develop other the renewables. And they certainly have a lot of sun. <laughs> um, and they have a fair amount of wind. And, in fact, uh, Naom, this new city they're trying to build on the Red Sea, was going to be totally powered by the wind and the and the sun. And a city for that was a city that's supposed to be a million people. Um, on the first question of security, um, the Saudis they've got to do something with this uh, eight to ten million, you know, foreign workers and their families in the country. I say eight to ten because a lot of them had already begun to leave uh, before the COVID nineteen crisis. But I saw just in the last few days they're talking about arranging special flights for these. Some of them are as I don't, I don't know how many they can do this for to 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 to, to uh, take them back to their countries of origin, which is mostly Pakistan and India and Philippines. Um, so they are beginning to think about you know what do we do with this huge you know. A uh, number of foreigners in, in the in the country that no longer can act as consumers or earn anything. Uh, so yeah, but I don't. Uh, this is uh, this is an issue that you know it's it's coming, but it's not quite there yet, Jane. About what and this is even more important for countries like you know the Qatar and the UAE. Have tiny national minorities in the in the whole society, um, but we haven't seen them growing, becoming a threat or joining ISIS or whatever, uh, becoming uh, you know joining becoming jihadists yet. But it's certainly an issue that is should be watched closely, and um, 
I can begin to see the Saudis worrying about this huge number of foreigners in the country. Thanks, David. Uh, Besma? Yeah, I'll jump in. Look, the guest workers, the informal economy, they're absolutely vulnerable to this because they often have low baseline of, of their health indicators as is. They live in crowded uh, dormitories in some cases. And let's not forget here, in many cases, informal workers are day laborers, which mean that they have to choose between are they going to go out today and get food or are they going to uh, you know, uh, respect the lockdown measures? So they're really in a precarious situation. Refugees as well, remember here there's a you know, intergenerational households here. In other words, grandma lives in the same camp sometimes. And this is really a virus that hits the elderly very, very hard. So it's very problematic. I wouldn't securitize it at talking about you know, the refugees turning into potential ISIS recruits, I think that's a bit unfair. But certainly I think the overall condition uh, of IDPs is very much a vulnerable one. As far as transition to renewables and um, other types of, um, you know, thinking about the energy structure, I actually think this is going to hurt renewables and going to hurt clean energy because in many ways, frankly, oil is so low and cheap that why would you want to move on to, um, you know, to renewables when you can get access to very cheap oil? So this is a disaster for, you know, let's say electricity cars, um, other types of investment in solar. This is really, I think, the time when that kind of market is going to do very poorly. Thank you, Besma. Um, I want to remind you again, if you want to ask a question, to press star one. Uh, we have a question coming in from Lauren Yunchao, from, uh, the CEO of BK Development. Uh, please go ahead and ask your question. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. And the presentation was very rich, guys, and I and I can help uh, to taking you each and every one. Uh, my two questions are one for Timothy Caldas, uh, and the other one should be for David Ottaway. Uh, first of all, in the in the situation that is happening all over in the Middle East, I've been living there uh, myself for some time, and I know how it's can be challenging for low-income uh, families. So when I witness, for example, in Jordan, when at the beginning, when they really decide to close all the wards, they didn't even let the family go outside to get their food, you know, their grocery. So I was wondering, uh, I know it's a different uh, reality than here in the West, uh, do those countries like Jordan and even uh, Egypt are working on some form of way close to the stimulus package that we are here to assist to those uh, low and middle uh, income uh, family. And the other uh, question is related to the di uh, diversification that is happening in the in 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 Riyadh. So uh, according to you, uh, Mr. Caldas, uh, what is the long-term impact of that attempt of diversification? So do you see uh, those uh, uh, mega projects uh, that you mentioned take like one or two years to restart and that cripple the, the economy of the Saudis even now? It's strong based on the uh reserve, but in the long term. So what is your uh, take on, on that? Thank you. 
Thank you very much. Uh, Tim, why don't you go ahead and, uh, and answer the, the first question on um, Egypt, and then uh, David can take the Saudi Arabia question. Go ahead. Uh, sure thing. Um, thanks for the question. Uh, right now, Egypt has tried to do a couple of things uh, to help those who are in a precarious situation economically. They've tried to increase um, the number of and the am amount uh, granted through their Tecaplin Karama programs, which are their means-tested cash transfer programs. The trouble is that covers about 10 million people total out of at least 30 million who live in poverty. Um, and they've done a cash transfer to informal laborers that will be repeated uh, monthly for the next three, four months of 500 pounds. But again, that captures roughly 10% of the informal workers so far, about one and a half million out of 12. Um, beyond that, there has been really an inability or a uh, a failure to uh, to provide more support to the poor. And it is feasible that if they go into full lockdown, they would they, they would try to do some sort of food transfer. But for now, there's really no clear indication of additional assistance. Yeah, uh, my the answer to your question. Um, it's um, the low price for oil, if it persists, but even already has pointed out to everybody, the importance of developing the non-oil sector of, the, of their economies because they can't generate enough income now to cover their budgets. On the other hand, those who had bet on tourism or are now betting on tourism to help develop the non-oil sector face a terrible dilemma that I don't think there's going to be much interest in travel until there's a vaccine against this virus. So um, pouring money into tourism, in the case of Saudi Arabia right now, um, if you even have the money, the question is you're not going to have much tourism, I don't think, for the next two or three years. So it's not really paying off uh, in the short and, and medium run uh, as a strategy to diversify your economy. Now, the Saudis are also investing in mining, and they're trying to develop an arms industry, et cetera, et cetera. But the big employment uh, sector they're looking to is entertainment and, um, and tourism, which they've really never had before. So I, it's they're, they're, they face a terrible dilemma. Thank you, David. Um, uh, we're going to start to wrap up, and uh, I'd like to sort of close with one question, um, and we'll give you about a minute um, for each one of you to answer, and and that's uh, pretty much focused on uh, regional collaboration or regional um, cooperation. Will this crisis um, sort of encourage um, interregional um, collaboration, cooperation to not only in the public, um, in, the, in the health uh, domain, but also in the economic domain, um, given the, the severity of, um, of basically the, the impact and the interconnectedness of these economies. Um, so are we likely to see more, more um, cooperation or less given the challenges that we see? So Basma, you can start. 
Thank you. Um, I, I'm sad to say I spent so much time trying to think about how the Gulf Cooperation Council can improve their cooperation, um, and we've seen uh, ebbs and flows in that. Uh, they have been cooperating uh, in the past few weeks, talking about trade and service, uh, keeping the doors open to ensuring that you know chains, uh, supply chains, and supplies of food are all um, well integrated. Of course, the Qatari-Saudi challenge is a big one. Um, they continue to have their uh, troubles. Um, sorry, I'm not sure if that's me or somebody else. Hello? Hello. There. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, one thing I think, so obviously the Saudi-Qatari challenge is a big one. Uh, will they kind of go get over their rift? Uh, this is a time in crisis to really, I think, put those resources together to see if they can come across something or come, up, uh, come over their old uh, battles. A big question might be the dollar peg. Uh, oil is obviously still invoiced in dollars. Uh, the Gulf countries have been at the mercy of the Federal Reserve and all of their monetary policy. Maybe this is a time for a discussion about moving away from you know, pegging or invoicing oil in dollars. I think that's a conversation worth having in the GCC. Maybe I'm overly optimistic in terms of cooperation, but I think this is a time really that one would hope to see that kind of cooperation materialize. Great. Thank you. Uh, David? Well, um, I think a lot depends on what happens on the oil market, whether there can be any cooperation or they're going to start fighting each other um, for a share of the market. Um, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Kuwait have really worked quite closely together on, you know, cuts in oil production. There's kind of a, uh, a trio there that think alike and are acting together. Um, but if this, if this, um, if low prices persist, you know, for the next two or three years, um, then they're going to be fighting for share of the market, just the way the Saudis have been doing vis-a-vis uh, Russia and vis-a-vis the United States. So, to me. Whether they can cooperate or not cooperate on the on the on the probably the most vital issue facing them all depends on what's how long low oil prices and I mean by low you know in the twenties and teens not the thirties and forties how long it persists and there's a there's a, just a huge uh, sea of oil that has to be absorbed <laughs> to to establish any balance between demand and supply. Um, so that's I would leave it there. Thank you, David. Um, Tim, I'm going to call on you because I think we lost Ibrahim, unfortunately, with technical uh, difficulties. So uh, go ahead, Tim. Sure. Um, I'm not terribly optimistic about cooperation. Um, I think that one of the challenges, for example, that Egypt is going to be facing is how to finance its way out of this when the dust settles. And the fact that the Gulf is under so much uh, pressure means that there might not be much cash on hand to provide support. I mean, my main like flurry of optimism is the hope that all of these financial constraints mean they might be a little less adventurous in intervening in each other's affairs. Um, so perhaps they're, uh, and that's, that's really optimistic, but perhaps some of the, uh, the military adventures undertaken by <clears throat> many of these countries could be constrained by their own, you know, crises at home. Um, but also a lot of these estimates are based on the assumption that we're going to have a vaccine. And we don't actually know that for sure. We certainly don't know that it's going to be ready in 18 months. Uh, that's a very optimistic, best-case scenario type of situation. So keep that in mind. 
the the demand for oil could be depressed for a really long time if if uh, we don't get a handle on this, and we're not sure we can. Thank you, Ken. Um, well, there's a, I guess a mixed back of some um, optimistic and, and less optimistic scenarios, uh, but I think um, we've only begun to um, began to scratch the surface today um, as to how uh, we see the implications, particularly on on the economies. There's also, as Congresswoman Harmon um, uh, mentioned, there's also a geosecurity and geopolitical component to this, which I hope will be um, the focus of another discussion uh, that we will um, organize for our participants um, in the next few weeks. So thank you very much um, to you, uh, Besma, David. Um, All right, thank you. Um, Thanks for having thank us. you so much, Congresswoman Harmon, uh, for joining us and keeping us off uh, with today's discussion. Uh, thanks to all participants, um, and we look forward to more uh, ground truth briefings um, on the Middle East. So stay tuned, and uh, please um, subscribe to our to um, our uh, listserv so that you get all the invitations and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, thank thanks. you once again, and thank uh, you. We will we will hopefully right. see you in person soon. Thank you. Okay. Good work.